Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, May 24th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Neo-Nazis used American vehicles in attack on Russia. So a neo-Nazi militia launched a cross-border raid from Ukraine into Russia's Belgrade region on Monday using American armored vehicles. And this is according to a report from the Financial Times. So it's confirmation that this group, the Russian Volunteer Corps, used uh, U.S. weapons, U.S. armored vehicles, so U.S. military equipment to carry out this raid. And the Financial Times spoke with De- Denis Nikitin, who is the leader of this group. He said the fighters who attacked Belgrade were in possession of U.S. armored vehicles, including at least two M1224 Max Pro armored vehicles, known as MRAPs, and several Humvees and videos and pictures posted by Russia's military corroborated uh, his claims. And, you know, the Financial Times and the New York Times now is reporting that they confirmed uh, pictures posted, pictures and videos posted by Russia's military of vehicles that were used in the attack are are real. Uh, So it's confirmed that this assault was launched with U.S. military equipment. And this is, uh, again, this group, the Russian Volunteer Corps and their leader who spoke with Financial Times. He is a well-known extremist who has ties to neo-Nazis. He also has his own white nationalist clothing line. And according to the Financial Times, this is how they put it. The Russian Volunteer Corps includes self-avowed neo-Nazis. This group was formed in 2022 and is said to be comprised of Russian citizens who have volunteered to fight for Kiev. Some of the members signed up to fight in the Donbass War back in 2014 and are Azov Battalion veterans. So it looks like, you know, this is another example of some pretty bad dudes ending up with, you know, NATO equipment. And they would not say how they got these uh, U.S. armored vehicles, Ukrainian intelligence officials, have acknowledged that they cooperate with the Russian Volunteer Corps and the other group that was involved in this assault, which is known as the Freedom of Russia Legion, which I don't know too much about. I haven't been able to find too much information on them. Financial Times described them as far right. Um, And they spoke with Andriy Chernyak, who is a Ukrainian military intelligence official. He said, quote, of course, we communicate with them. Of course, we share some information. And one might say we even cooperate, end quote. And, you know, before this attack, the Russian Volunteer Corps, they took credit for uh, a raid in Bryansk inside Russia back in March. And when I was looking them up then, I mean, you know, it said that they were part of the Ukrainian, you know, ground forces. So they're part of the Ukrainian military. Um, Chernyak denied supplying the Russian volunteers with equipment and claimed that they launched the operation on their own. So that's their story there, even though they're admitting cooperation. But again, according to the Times of London, they reported that one of the Discord leaks show that Ukraine had been planning attacks on Russian territory using Russian volunteer groups for some time. And one of the documents said 
that the Russian citizens fighting for Ukraine are armed with various qualitative types of NATO weapons. The State Department, uh, when asked about the news, uh, spokesman Matthew Miller said he was skeptical of the reports. And, you know, this press briefing was a little earlier in the day, maybe before this Financial Times report came out. I know before the New York Times report came out, he was acting like it was just pictures being posted on Twitter or Telegram. But that's not the case now. And uh, Miller said, again, that he was skeptical of the reports, and he insisted that the U.S. does not encourage or enable strikes inside Russia, but said that it's up to Ukraine to to decide how to conduct the war. And, you know, you notice he's not saying Ukraine can't use weapons we give them inside Russia. That's not what we want to see. You know, it's kind of a, you know, he's kind of brushing the whole thing off like it's not a big deal. It seems like a pretty big deal to me that there was a, pretty decent sized attack from what the reports sound like launched with American military equipment. And the next one here uh, is just an update on, on what's going on on the ground there. Russia says that it has defeated a Ukrainian sabotage group in Belgrade. And again, this is the, you know, these groups, the Russian uh, volunteer corps and the, the other, the other one. So Russia's defense ministry on Tuesday said that they defeated a Ukrainian sabotage group, in Belgrade, according to Russia's TASS news agency, the Russian military said that it blocked and wiped out Ukrainian nationalist formations in the Belgrade region during what they describe as a counterterrorism operation. And they said that they killed over uh, 70 uh, people. So they killed 70 of the, the people that attacked. And according to Belgorod's governor, at least 12 people were wounded in the cross-border attack. Russian officials say that the sabotage group launched mortar and artillery fire on residential areas and announced that they were launching a terrorism probe into the operation. So unless I I missed it, I haven't, you know, I've seen uh, Putin, you know, call them terrorists, Russian officials say that they need to be eliminated, that they're extremist terrorists. I haven't seen any big, much rhetoric about the U.S. role. I mean, maybe they're waiting to present their case or something, but it almost has me concerned that they're not really talking about it because maybe that means that they're planning some sort of big response. I don't know, but there's certainly uh, definitely a, a risk of a big escalation over this raid. I know uh, back in March after the Bryansk one, Russia launched a pretty big missile barrage across Ukraine. And they said that was in response to the, to the Bryansk attack. So what they're going to do now, is it going to be something like that or, or are we going to see something more? I, I don't know. Uh, but it's definitely uh you know, concerning what, what's going on here. And it's very openly, again, the Ukrainian officials officially, they're not taking credit for this, but it's very clear that Ukraine's uh, military intelligence was involved in this whole thing. All right. The next one here, Poland says that it's ready to start training Ukrainians on F-16s. So Poland's defense minister said that Warsaw was ready to start this training after President Biden signed off on the delivery of the American-made aircraft. So the comments came after the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, said that the training of Ukrainian pilots on F-16s had already begun in several countries, including Poland. Uh, But the Polish defense minister said that was not true. He said, quote, we're ready. The Polish side is ready to train pilots on F-16 aircraft. Such training has not yet begun, end quote. So the Dutch defense minister said uh, made similar comments, saying that a coalition of countries 
is ready to train Ukrainian pilots, but that it has not started in Poland or anywhere else. So Burrell said it started, and this is like the second day in a row, I think he said that. And they're saying, no, no, it hasn't started um, unless maybe they started earlier and they don't want people to really know about that. But I mean, it was no secret that they were preparing to train Ukrainians on these aircraft. So I don't think they would really hide if any training was going on. Uh, so while President Biden has given the green light for the F-16 deliveries, there's still a long way to go before the aircraft make it to the battlefield. And again, I've I've said, covered this quite a bit, but the training apparently... You know, there's very different uh, estimates on how long it will take. They vary from as little as four months up to two years. But most of them that I've seen is is between four and nine months. I think that's kind of a range that we should expect. And of course, this marks another big escalation in U.S. and NATO involvement in the war. All right, the next one here, Boris Johnson sent to Texas to lobby the GOP to keep arming Ukraine. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson met with a group of Republicans in Texas on Monday to urge them to continue supporting Ukraine in its war with Russia. So the Center for European Policy Analysis, which is a pro-Ukrainian think tank based in Washington, they decided to enlist Johnson to push Republicans to support Ukraine as more and more GOP members have questioned the policy of flooding weapons into the country with no clear goal. Unfortunately, you know, not enough Republicans are questioning this yet, but hopefully, you know, that continues to grow. So Johnson said in a meeting with a group of Texas Republicans, quote, I just urge you all to stick with it. You are backing the right horse. Ukraine is going to win. They are going to defeat Putin, end quote. So while visiting Texas, Boris Johnson also met with George W. Bush, the former president and Governor Greg Abbott. So he got a nice warm welcome there in Texas. And the head of this think tank that enlisted uh, Johnson said that they did so because he is uh, seen as an architect of the Western policy on Ukraine. And the British have been very bellicose this whole time, uh, especially, uh, you know, when Boris Johnson was in there. Maybe I shouldn't say especially because since then they've sent the tanks and, and you know, pushed to send the jets. But Boris Johnson was a very staunch backer of this proxy war during his time in office. And he played a pretty major role in helping scuttle peace talks that were being held in the early days of the conflict. In April 2022, when he was the prime minister, he traveled to Kiev and urged Zelensky not to negotiate with Putin. And according to Ukrainian media, he also told Zelensky that even if Ukraine was ready to sign a deal with Russia, Kiev's Western backers were not. And apparently, according again, according to Ukrainian media, his visit was a crucial factor in Ukraine calling off a potential Zelensky-Putin meeting. So it seemed like the pressure worked. And Johnson was only prime minister for a little over six months during the war. Uh, he stepped down in early September 2022. When Liz Truss went in, but she wasn't in very long, thank God. Uh, but Johnson, again, only in there for a little over six months. He went to Kiev three times in that period. You know, that's more than any other world leader. And he also went back after he stepped down. He was there in January of this year. So again, you know, he has been, he was kind of uh, one of the big faces of, you know, this proxy war against Russia while he was still prime minister and has carried on, you know, since 
leaving to try to keep, uh, you know, pressuring, you know, calling for support, you know, the U.S. and its allies to keep backing this war. Um, all right. So the next one here, this is from the Libertarian Institute, six African countries to promote Ukraine ceasefire. This is from Connor Freeman. So we know from last week that South Africa's uh, prime minister or sorry, president Cyril Ramaphosa is leading this African peace effort. So it's going to be six African leaders that are going to visit uh, Kiev and Moscow. Uh, and they're expected to go early next month now. Uh, we're getting kind of a timeline on it now. But they said something it- interesting. Uh, Ramaphosa said something interesting, said that he's going to try to convince Ukraine to, uh, you know, agree to a ceasefire uh, and agree to negotiations before, you know, they get all their demands, which their demands right now are, you know, a full Russian withdrawal, including from Crimea. So it's really a non-starter and unrealistic demands. So that seems to be the message that they're going to bring to Ukraine. Um, And it's going to include the leaders of Senegal and the Republic of Congo, Uganda, Egypt, and Zambia, and also uh, South Africa. So hopefully, you know, this makes some progress or they get through to them, the Ukrainians a little bit, but I don't really have much faith that there's going to be a breakthrough anytime soon, unfortunately, even with this and the Chinese efforts. But we'll see. Uh, You know, the fact that there's more countries pushing this, I think, is definitely a good thing. All right. The next one here, uh, Viktor Orban says that the Ukraine war can only end with a deal between Russia and the U.S., So Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said Tuesday that Ukraine is unlikely to win the war against Russia and that the only way the conflict can end is through a deal between the U.S. and Russia. So Orban said this at the uh, at an economic forum in Doha. He said, quote, looking at the reality, the figures, the surroundings, the fact that NATO is not ready to send troops, it is obvious that there is no victory for the poor Ukrainians on the battlefield. That is my position. The war can be stopped only if the Russians can make an argument with the U.S. In Europe, we are not happy with that, but it's the only way out, end quote. And he's made similar comments saying, you know, this is, you know, because it is a proxy war, that the only way out of this thing is if the U.S. and Russia settle something. So the Hungarian government's calls for diplomacy and a ceasefire in Ukraine, that's really angered the United States as we know that the White House has previously come out against a ceasefire, explicitly against a pause in fighting. And the U.S. ambassador to Hungary recently slammed Budapest's calls for peace, calling them cynical. So Orban's position breaks from most European leaders, but he emphasized that he has concern for the Ukrainians, including ethnic Hungarians who are in the country and are being conscripted to fight in Ukraine. He said, quote, our hearts are with the Ukrainians. We understand how much has happened, but I am speaking here as a politician and the solution is to save lives, end quote. Um, so he's not letting up on his position despite all the, the pressure uh, from the U.S. and the EU. All right. The next one here, Netanyahu government has doubled is Israel's airstrikes in Syria. 
So Israel's defense minister said on Monday that the Israeli government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu doubled airstrikes in Syria since taking power in late December 2022. So Israeli defense minister Yoav Gallant said, quote, since I took office, the number of Israeli strikes against the Iranians in Syria have doubled, end quote. So while Israel frames its airstrikes in Syria as operations against Iran, and they do occasionally kill Iranians, they killed two IRGC officers pretty recently, the strikes also often kill or wound Syrian soldiers and civilians. It usually hurts or kills Syrian soldiers. This year, Israel targeted Syria's Aleppo airport several times, as as I've covered a lot, following the earthquake that devastated the city of Aleppo in northwest Syria, you know, and they were receiving aid through that airport and Israel put it out of commission several times, at least three times that I know of. So Israeli officials rarely comment on individual strikes in Syria and Gallant would not offer a number on how many strikes have been launched by the Netanyahu government. He claimed that the operations are weakening Iran's capabilities in Syria. He said, quote, as part of this campaign, we are working methodically to strike the Iranian intelligence capabilities in Syria. These strikes inflict significant damage to the attempts by the Revolutionary Guard to establish a foothold a few kilometers from the Israeli border, end quote. So the uptick in Israeli airstrikes came as Netanyahu has been facing a potential, sorry, not a potential, facing a political crisis over his planned judicial overhaul. And there's also been a surge in violence against Palestinians, including the recent bombing campaign in Gaza. And, you know, there's been a lot of raids in the West Bank and things like that. All right. So the next one here, Israel's military chief says that they have the ability to hit Iran. So the head of the Israeli Defense Forces threatened on Tuesday that Israel could soon take action against Iran over its nuclear program and said the IDF has the ability to hit Iran. So Iran is currently enriching some of its uranium at 60%, and that's a step that they took in response to an Israeli sabotage attack on its Natanz nuclear facility back in 2021. So Uh, That 60% is still short of the 90% needed for weapons grade. So right now, there's still no sign that Iran's made a decision to make a nuclear weapon, despite the Israeli uh, claims about it. And, you know, I'll, you know, if I believe that they are, you know, I'll let you know, it's not like uh, I, I have an interest in, you know, putting this, putting out this narrative that Iran doesn't want to build a nuclear weapon. It's just the fact is that they're not, they're not trying to right now and they haven't in decades. And, you know, that's been their policy for, for, you know, since the revolution in 1979, that they will not develop weapons of mass destruction. That's just the reality. You know, despite again, this hysteria from Israeli officials that we just always hear. So the IDF chief chief of staff claimed that there are potential developments in Iran's nuclear program that could spark Israeli military action. Uh, He said, quote, without getting into details, there are possible negative developments on the horizon that could prompt action. We have abilities and others have abilities. We have the ability to hit Iran. We are not indifferent to what Iran is trying to build around us. And it is difficult for Iran to be indifferent to the line that we are taking, end quote. So one thing I mentioned in the article 
uh, is the context, because often missing from the conversation about Iran's nuclear program is the fact that Israel has a secret nuclear arsenal. Israeli officials often push this narrative that a nuclear-armed Iran would spark an arms race in the region, while their own country already has nukes. So, you know, it's just a false narrative. And also on Tuesday, Iran's national security advisor said that the U.S. and Israel agreed on what the red line would be for an attack on Iran. And these comments come after Axios recently reported that the U.S. had proposed to Israel to start conducting joint military planning with, uh, you know, on Iran. And apparently the Israeli officials thought the U.S. was trying to tie their hands and they're just uh, seeking clarification on what joint planning would entail. So another thing with Israel is the question is, do they really have the ability to uh, launch an attack on Iran or their nuclear facilities, which are some are buried deep underground because they don't have the bunker busters that the U.S. has, that the U.S. military posted a picture of online recently and, you know, a threat aimed at Iran. Israel doesn't have them and they don't have the heavy bombers that they need to carry them. Um, and there's also, I understand that that it's not clear if Israel can if their warplanes can go there uh, without refueling, they don't have the proper refueling planes. It's just not really clear if they can actually do it without the U.S. All right. Um, so the last one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. The U.S. is conducting more patrols in the Persian Gulf. The Department of Defense is sending its warships through the Strait of Hormuz at an increased pace. The operations are a reaction to increased tensions with Iran. So last month, the U.S. seized a tanker carrying Iranian oil to China. In response, Tehran took control of two commercial ships in the Persian Gulf, and Washington was not happy over the retaliatory seizures. On Monday, the commander of the U.S. Navy's 5th Fleet said that Iran's actions are unacceptable. After Iran took possession of the second ship, uh, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, he announced that the Pentagon is going to be increasing its military presence in the Persian Gulf. And apparently, according to the Fifth Fleet, um, the U.S. is not deploying more military assets in the region. What they're doing instead is conducting more operations, more patrols in the region. They're just going to have a, you know, more frequent presence in these areas. Uh, so, again, you know, this is another area where tensions could always spike. There are often... Um, maybe not often, but occasionally there are encounters, close encounters between the U.S. military and Iran's military in the Strait of Hormuz. Sometimes the U.S. Coast Guard is involved patrolling the Persian Gulf. Um, so it's a, it can get a little hairy there. So this is definitely a, a risky thing, um, you know, these encounters between the U.S. and Iranian militaries. Uh, all right, that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have a lot of great ones, as always. One from Daniel Larison. It's a bad idea for Biden to broker Saudi-Israeli normalization. One from Ted Snyder. A bad week for America in the world. One from James Bovard. The FBI just got caught in yet more massive, outrageous FISA abuses. One from Kelly Vlahos over at Responsible Statecraft. What does the fall of Bakhmut in Ukraine really mean? And one from Stella Assange, the wife of Julian Assange, bring Julian Assange home. And uh, that's over at Consortium News. This is a speech that she recently gave at the National Press Club. I believe that is in uh, Australia. Uh, so go check that out. 
Um, that's everything for me. You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate and share the show, share the website, tell your friends about it. We appreciate all that. And, you know, I appreciate all the comments uh, and the feedback, you know, don't, you know, feel free. You could always email me or message me on Twitter or something. Uh, if you got a comment, uh, but that is it. I will be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening. <laughs>